Good evening, I'm Paul Kennedy. This is Ideas on the Art of Peter Schumann and the Bread and Puppet Theater. Peter Schumann is a great reason for the huge rebirth of puppetry in this country and the art of puppetry. I mean, it's big now. It wasn't a number of years ago, but it's through his work that that's really happened, through his work and the people who've worked with him. So it all goes back to him. In August of 1990, in Philadelphia, while the Republican National Convention was nominating George Bush for president, an old warehouse across town was under siege. It was surrounded by police on horses, police on motorcycles, police in cars, and police hovering overhead in helicopters and dropping down paratrooper-style onto the roof. The building was being used to build puppets for street demonstrations. Seventy people were arrested and many held incommunicado until the end of the convention, though all the charges were later dismissed. The puppets were confiscated and destroyed. The fact that police now find it necessary to vandalize puppets and arrest puppeteers gives some indication of just how prominent and how threatening a part puppets now play in radical politics. Many of the puppeteers owe their inspiration, and often their training, to the bread and puppet theatre, which began to use puppetry to express political ideas 40 years ago, during the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations of the 1960s. The theatre is the creation of sculptor Peter Schumann, who fashions the company's large, expressive puppets. With them, he's created many original theatre works, for which critic Stefan Brecht has called him one of the great artists of the 20th century, as well as giving life to many older forms of outdoor performance and celebration. For many years, Bread and Puppet's annual summer pageant drew tens of thousands of spectators to the Schumann farm in northeastern Vermont. Through puppetry, Schumann has created a new language of political expression, a language whose depth beauty and restraint carries it far beyond the dogmatic and moralizing tone one often associates with political art. Tonight in Ideas, we continue with Puppet Uprising, a four-hour series by David Cayley on Peter Schumann and his Bread and Puppet Theatre. Photographs are available on our website at cbc.ca ideas. In this broadcast, part three of the series, David Cayley examines Bread and Puppet's contribution to political theatre, a contribution expressed not just in the theatre's productions, but also in its way of life. New York, December 2001. Outside the theatre for the new city, members of the Bread and Puppet Theatre stand in a semicircle facing First Avenue and sing an old American shape note hymn. The mood is friendly and festive. Like the bread that will be served after the show, the singing frames Bread and Puppet's appearance as something other than your standard evening at the theater. On the bill tonight is something called a cardboard oratorio for the genuine red zone. The title refers to the heart of the old Italian city of Genoa, 
which was called the Red Zone, when it was walled off during the meetings of the political leaders of the G8 countries in the spring of 2001. The piece begins with a long, dance-like section in which the puppeteers move a series of puppets, while above them, director Peter Schumann circulates a light clipped to a pole. The puppets are flat papier-mâché reliefs in which one can make out many human figures. These figures seem, at first, murky and indistinct, as if not yet fully born. But when the light strikes them, their faces and postures can suddenly convey a vivid impression of fear, horror, and vulnerability. Schumann calls these puppets the naked population and presents their manipulation by the clothed puppeteers as an embodiment of the relations of power and powerlessness. All this is wordless, but then a text is presented. A letter from Damiano Giambelli to the puppeteers in Glover, Vermont. Dear puppeteers, here is our report of our participation. The letter from a fellow puppeteer describes the isolation of the red zone with barricades and passport controls, and then goes on to describe a night raid on the alternative media center and an adjacent school where demonstrators were sleeping. I was there when the Italian police raided the Indy Media Center and the Diaz School across the street. The media and the politicians were kept out, and they beat people. They beat people who had been sleeping, who held up their hands and cried out, pacifisti. They beat the men and the women. They broke bones, smashed teeth, shattered skulls. They left blood on the walls, on the windows, a pool of blood in spots where people had been sleeping. And now the Broken Bones Orchestra of Genoa will perform the Broken Arms and Legs Suite of Genoa. The Broken Arms and Legs Suite is one of several orchestral passages in the play. It's the alternation of solo, choral, and orchestral sections that makes the piece an oratorio. The effect is droll and utterly serious at the same time. The oratorio goes on to represent various other events of the Genoa G8 meetings, the death of one of the protesters, a statement by the leaders, and concludes with a table scene, a solemn communal celebration accompanied by a Georgian folk song. Peter Schumann's Genoa Oratorio gives something of the flavor of his political art. It's an art that I would describe as commemorative rather than ideological. It promotes no program, but instead calls for an awakening to the present moment, a recognition of the true state of affairs. Such recognition requires fitting gestures of denunciation and praise, mourning and celebration, and Schumann's art tries to fashion these gestures. Instead of letting Genoa rush by as one more item of information, 
he makes an oratorio which enlarges and draws out the events of Genoa until they become truly visible in all their pity and terror. He seeks the word, the gesture, the image which the occasion demands. And it is this responsiveness, in his view, that constitutes the proper political vocation of art. Peter Schumann presents himself as a political artist, but he uses the word politics in the broad sense of the way the world is run. Politics means the existing order, whose power and solidity convince us that the way things are is the way they must be. The purpose of his art is to make politics visible and also questionable. This means not just bringing the world in front of people in a way that allows them to experience it in depth, but also allowing them to stand back from the world and consider it. Puppet theater, he thinks, is well suited to this task of encouraging involvement and critical distance at the same time. Puppets draw our attention, but remain a noticeably human creation from which we can recognize our difference. This distinguishes them from actors who draw us in without estranging us. And so, in order to understand this virtue of puppets, we have to begin with Peter Schumann's critique of modern acting. Contemporary actors invite us to identify with them. They draw us into their seductive make-believe. And insofar as we yield ourselves to the illusion, we forego critical distance. Convincing acting replaces reality with its imitation, and we lose ourselves in this substitute world which asks nothing of us except our desire to give ourselves up to it. This replacement of reality, in Schumann's view, defines the predicament of popular culture, a predicament he thinks is unique to our time. It's so typically refined as to what it is by our century, not so much last century. Remember the last century actor, we know a little bit about him because the beginning of the century invented the phonograph and we could hear some of their voices. So the, the acting styles of these, what I know, the from Austrian and from German acting of the time was a form of heightened, poetic, ecstatic delivery of speech that was basically opera, this rhythmical stances, this rolling voice, the way it was composed. And that exactly what is what Stanislavski, etc., opposed. They, they wanted reality as real as possible on stage, and they trained how to talk on the telephone and more and more real. And I think it's very typical for our century, this style of acting that we are talking about there. Konstantin Stanislavski was the Russian actor and director who first insisted on a natural style in acting. Delivering a speech as though talking on the telephone became one of the ways of training in his method. Today, actors entertain us with an imitation of every agony and every ecstasy of living and dying. No intimacy is closed to the all-consuming gaze. These voyeuristic satisfactions, in Peter Schumann's view, 
dull our responses and weaken our grip on the world. They also betray the vocation of art, which is to enhance reality, not reproduce it. I mean, just take a look at opera. Opera is also reality. It's also love story. It's also tragedy, child murder, and all those things. But it takes reality and elongates it into gigantic, long monologues that then dialogue a little bit and go back into gigantic monologues, isn't it? So it's taking a tiny little bit, a few seconds of reality and blows them into this gigantic, wonderful world. Isn't that a greater way of experiencing that reality of the kiss or the child murder or whatever it is, rather than just the imitation of it, the sentimental imitation of that? It seems to me there's just a tremendous loss in this fashionable, realistic presentation. It's so empty-headed and little compared to classical Greek drama, or compared to opera, or compared to Chinese drama, or no drama, or all these grand forms. They're doing something so, so different with reality. Peter Schumann's critique of naturalistic acting links him to the foremost political playwright of the first half of the 20th century, Bertolt Brecht. Brecht, too, was a critic of naturalism and proposed in its stead what he called epic theater, a theater of enlarged and obviously artificial gestures which does not encourage the audience to identify with the actors. The actors, in Brecht's theory, should demonstrate rather than imitate the action of the play. But there was a difficulty, says Taylor Storr, a friend of the Bread and Puppet Theatre and a professor at the University of Massachusetts. Brecht had lots of trouble with his actors because he couldn't get them to not act enough. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to get an actor to not act. As long as you've got an actor, no matter how many times you tell him, look, here's your job. You're supposed to be like a person who's just witnessed an accident on the street and now the cop has come, and you're explaining what happened. And you say, well, the guy was walking like this, and then the car came like that, and then he fell like this. So, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to become that person. You're supposed to demonstrate it to your audience, the policemen, people in the theater. But it was very hard for these actors that Brecht worked with, who were sometimes skilled, to do that. You know, they wanted to be the victim instead of to illustrate the victim. And they couldn't make the distinction. And it's hard, it is hard to make that distinction. The attempt to keep the audience aware of the artificiality of the theater was what Brecht famously called the alienation effect. Its point was to encourage critical distance rather than identification from the audience. But it was difficult to achieve, as Taylor Storr says, because of the tendency of actors to try to endear themselves to the spectators by sentimentalizing the action of the play. This brings us, at last, back to puppets, because puppet theater, Peter Schumann says, offered a way out of this bind. In puppetry, it was an automatic. You were alienating from the very beginning. I mean, you're, you're using the puppet and you're telling your audience about the irreality of that right away. The puppet does that naturally anyway. 
I mean, it doesn't have a chance of being the real thing. So the puppet says what the actor has to say with words. I am not Mac the Knife, but I present to you this person. And the puppet does that by its first gesture already. It's right there and it says, I am representing something other than what you see here. I'm standing in for something. So it's, it's a very different world. Puppets have a second advantage for Schumann as well. Puppetry historically has not claimed or been accorded the dignity of the serious theater. It's a street art using cheap, perishable, easily available materials. And this very flimsiness, this obvious marginality, in Schumann's view, helps puppetry as a political theater. It's ridiculous. There's ridiculousness to the idea of fighting with paper mache against atomic bombs and machine guns, because that's part of the fight of what we are about. And all this puppetry is rebel-rousing and is insurrectional by nature and wants to fight the order of life that exists. And naturally, a very big element in that is it's the ridiculousness of that attempt. Is that an inherited tradition with puppets already? I read it entirely that way, as being the both the seriousness of sculpture, which is divine, and the total ridiculousness of something made from materials that are straight from the garbage can. Puppetry's lack of pretense prevents it from mystifying its relations with its audience. It cannot blur the boundary between art and life as the actor's theater is tempted to do. In identifying with puppets, an audience cannot help but recognize what it is doing. And this bringing to light of the necessary collaboration between artist and audience for Taylor Storr is the very joy of puppetry. There are moments when, you know, he's got these giant 20-foot puppets dancing with each other in front of you. Well, there's nothing less realistic than that. You know, that's just, it's not realistic. On the other hand, they're dancing, and you get into it, and you forget that they're puppets. And it's not that you think they're people. It's that you forget the whole thing, and you're just in the world, this wonderful dance. It's a dance, and it really is. And then you think, well, but they're just puppets. And then you think, but they're really dancing. And it's the Duke of Naples. And it goes back and forth. I love the back and forthness, the noticing of how the art is made. What Taylor Storr calls back-and-forthness is part of what makes Peter Schumann's art political. An art which disguises its illusion and pretends to reality is, in Schumann's view, pacifying. It disempowers its audience and trains them for other passive consumer roles. The non-realistic art of the Bread and Puppet Theater, on the other hand, is collaborative and demands the imaginative participation of the audience. John Bell was part of the Bread and Puppet Theater for many years. He develops this point with reference to two Bread and Puppet shows, Fire, in which the unrolling of red electrical tape signifies burning, and a nativity play in which a calf is born in a sack made from a dry cleaner's bag and licked clean by a red sock. 
It's not realistic. It's allowing you to imagine. It's multi-leveled. On the one level, you're fully aware of the fact that it's red tape, for example, or that it's a dry cleaning bag. And then, on the other hand, you know very well what it represents. And so you enter into the performance with the ability to receive the shock of the red tape representing the flames consuming this person who's immolating themselves. You and the performers focus on the red tape as something other than just red tape. And that mutual effort, the performers and the audience, that mutual effort of interpreting an action with a material object, red tape, becomes something greater. It's like, you know, communion, you know, the wafer, this is the body of Christ. And you go, yeah, this is the body of Christ. Well, it's not the body of Christ. It's something that was baked. It's flour and water. But for the purposes of the moment of communion, okay, we are all agreeing to say this is the body of Christ and this is the blood of Christ, this wine that comes from grapes from a vineyard somewhere. And with puppet theater, we're saying, okay, this is a Buddhist monk immolating him or herself, or this is a cow giving birth, or this is the great warrior, or this is Uncle Fatso. And at the same time, we know perfectly well that it's not. But we're all involved in this act of investing it. And with film and acting, it's, it is different. They're not asking you to do that. They're saying, here it is. It's complete. Puppetry, its practitioners say, is ridiculous, transparent, incomplete. Its marginality precludes its putting on airs or secluding itself in what is revealingly called the art world. It must incite its audience to imagine and to act rather than offering them packaged satisfactions which become substitutes for action. It claims the fool's freedom to tell the truth. And all this is what makes it, in Peter Schumann's view, an inherently political art. This engaged political side of puppetry is reflected not just in its content, but in the lives of puppeteers as well. Schumann's bread and puppet theater has existed now for nearly 40 years, and during that time it has depended on the work of hundreds of puppeteers. They have been for the most part unrecognized and poorly paid. The weekly salary for members of the bread and puppet troupe until a recent small raise, had stood for 12 years at $150 a week, with everyone, including Peter and Elka Schumann, getting the same. And the work is hard. Mark Estrin is a musician and writer from Burlington, Vermont, who has been involved with Bread and Puppet for 30 years. He took part in a number of European tours in the late 60s and early 70s. They were pretty uh, exhausting tours, and I remember it was actually one of the great moments in my memory and, and in thinking about Peter was a post-tour. I don't remember exactly where we were, but everybody was sitting around on the last day after the tour was over, and one of the puppeteers said, but everybody is unhappy. And 
Peter was just puffing on his pipe, saying, as usual, very little, listening. And there was a big silence after, but everybody is unhappy. And, and Peter said what may have been the only thing he said all evening, which was, happiness is not important. <laughs> a showstopper, you know. <laughs> And it's given me a lot to think about, and I, I, you know, I tend to agree. And I think that people who work for long times in with Bread and Puppet have to, in some, in some way, embrace that value. Happiness is not important. The work is so intense and so hard and and so unending, and the conditions are so fierce usually, and it's anonymous work by and large, so people don't get the payoff of being famous or personalities or having reviews they can send to their moms in the paper, or that the, the traditional dimensions of happiness often are not honored. There's another kind of happiness. Obviously, this theater couldn't have existed for, for you know, 40 years now if people were not in some way made very, very happy by working there. But it's still is true that happiness is not important yeah. <laughs> in, the, in Bread and Puppet. Despite what Mark Estrin calls the fierce conditions, willing puppeteers have continuously turned up. Trudy Cohen joined Bread and Puppet in the 1970s, at a time when the company was performing a big show called That Simple Light May Rise from Complicated Darkness. It began with a creation scene in which the puppeteers lay under a large sheet of black plastic, normally used to cover silage on Vermont farms, and pushed it up in different places to form a landscape. That was my first show with Peter and the company, and it was so difficult. I found it just... I couldn't imagine how these puppeteers could do it. And we had these black costumes with veils over our faces, and the first scene was everyone under this gigantic piece of black plastic, and we were supposed to make this plastic make shapes and move around, and I had no idea where I was or what I was doing, and I, everybody else seemed to know what they were doing. I just couldn't imagine how I had gotten myself in this situation of being buried under a piece of plastic. And so then they all went on tour, and I did hand puppet shows, and it felt much more like that was my, where I belonged. And then gradually I started doing other kinds, of, you know, more work with Peter, and enjoying being inside puppets, which now is one of the greatest pleasures I know. What Trudy Cohen came to love about puppetry, she says, is what Peter Schumann once called its quest to reveal the souls of things. Burying myself into something else and giving life to something else that isn't about me is completely thrilling. I really love it. And it can be, you know, a little tiny piece of paper or it can be some gigantic piece of cloth, you know, or paper mache. But whatever it is, I really, I get very excited about it. What happens? Well, sometimes I think of it as the difference between being on stage as an actor where the role, the life, is something that you have to take into yourself and it's about you and about assuming emotions and characters and situations, but all within yourself. And for me, it's like taking who I am and putting it into something that's not me and putting myself over there. But I also like puppets because I think they're more expressive than just about anything. I mean, I think it takes a, a truly great actor to be as evocative as a puppet. 
And I've seen some great actors, but I've seen many more great puppets. <laughs> and Peter has made a lot of them, yeah. of the puppets that I think are great. Acting, Trudy Cohen says, assumes or absorbs life. The puppet is an alien, a stranger, who never completely loses the otherness of a thing mysteriously alive. So the puppeteer has to seek its life. I find it really challenging to understand an object or to give life to it in some very particular way, that if it moves this way, you really believe it. And if it moves this way, it just looks like a piece of cardboard. And for me, that's really exciting to figure that out. And on a very big scale, you know, on a pageant scale, you're part of a, of a, gr a large group and you feel comple almost completely invisible. And it's so much about your faith in the whole, the whole thing. And I guess your faith in Peter, because he's the only one who sees the whole thing. And to be, so it's like how I always imagine playing in an orchestra must be, that you have your little voice, your little sound, and you get together with a lot of people and suddenly it's this huge, spectacular sound. It's like I move across the field and wiggle this little piece of cloth, but I'm part of a, a huge painting that's only possible because there are so many of us doing these little things. You know, as a sense of participation and something bigger than yourself, being part of a community, to me that's really exciting. This communitarian side of Bread and Puppet is also reflected in the sharing of work. Tasks are not specialized or pre-assigned. That was one of the things that drew John Bell to the company. At the time he first saw them, in the early 1970s, he was a student actor at Middlebury College. In my college, and this is the typical division of theater, you're an actor, or you're a director, or you're a costume designer, or you're a set designer, or you're a tech person, or you're a production person, management person, you're a playwright. And those are all very separate jobs. And they have their own hierarchies and their own ways of dress. And, and I would have friends who were in the cost, who did costumes or who built sets. And I was very different from being an actor. Like you didn't hang out with them. You know, it was all the separation of tasks. Here was this puppet theater where the same people are driving the bus, they're schlepping these boxes, they're building the stage, they're making food, they're playing music, they're performing, they're acting, they're dancing, they're building puppets, they're doing everything. There isn't this differentiation. That appealed to me greatly. John Bell joined the theater and was one of its core members well into the 1980s. Since 1975, when Peter Schumann and his family moved to a farm in northeastern Vermont. Most of the puppeteers have lived together in the old farmhouse, with others finding or building places nearby. John Bell and Trudy Cohen, who later married, lived there for a number of years before leaving Bread and Puppet and establishing their own theater, Great Small Works. Claire Dolan belongs to the generation of puppeteers who came after John and Trudy. I've sort of been through lots of changes of different constellations of people, you know, and different constellations of people behave in different ways and organize in different ways. But the basic thing is sort of anarchic. It's just sort of how it all shakes out, like 
who steps forward to do which task and if they can do it, you know, and if they get sick of it, then someone else does it. And sometimes things fall through the cracks because we're not concretely organized. And then you realize, oh, no, nobody sent out the press releases and then no one comes to the show or, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. But uh, like this group that's there now, that we're all sort of tend to be more on the organized side like people make lists and have lots of meetings and and sometimes it's too much you know like there are constant meetings about organizing who's going to do what on this next tour and how we're going to do this or that and that can be both good and bad you know but um each each sort of constellation of people behaves differently but it is very loose it's been loose this loose anarchist style of organization has not prevented bread and puppet from creating a huge body of work it has stayed afloat for 40 years as an independent, non-commercial, non-subsidized theater. For Claire Dolan, looking back on the theater's history, what amazes is the sheer scope of the enterprise. So many people, so many puppeteers, so many volunteers, so many participants, so many neighbors, so many friends, so many John and Trudy's and so many people and in such a strange way in a way that each individual's contribution is very individual like no one else is John Bell no one else is Trudy Cohen but also there's this massive sense when you're part of a huge collective kind of culmination of effort in that way there's also this sense of like you could be anyone it doesn't necessarily have to be you like if there wasn't Trudy Cohen there would be something else in that spot and that's such a strange interesting contradiction and it's such a strange interesting way of making art and being involved in the art making process that is totally antithetical I think to the particularly American, because that's what I'm familiar with, typical art production, which is all about the individual artist and all about that uniqueness or something, right? Authenticity, the signature at the bottom of the painting, the uniqueness that that person made that object and that's why it's a valuable art object or whatever. And what we're talking about here with this body of work is completely not that. And yet, the character of Peter Schumann is like this totally dominating, like one could say the theater only is about him and only exists because of him. And yet, there's this huge crowd of people behind that body of work. So complicated. I find that so complex to think about and so interesting. On Ideas Tonight, you're listening to Puppet Uprising, a four-hour portrait by David Cayley of Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. Photographs are available on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Claire Dolan points to the contradiction between Bread and Puppet as a huge collective enterprise 
and Bread and Poppet as the expression of the artistic genius of Peter Schumann. This contradiction has been, from the beginning, one of the mainsprings of the Bread and Puppet Company. Of Schumann's genius, there can be no doubt. Since 1963, when he discovered in puppet theatre a way of combining his interests in sculpture, dance, and political expression, his achievement has been prodigious, his talent prodigal. He has worked with the sureness, resourcefulness, and absence of second thought that mark genius as virtually a force of nature. But this, of course, has presented a continuous challenge to those around him. Massimo Schuster met up with Bread and Puppet when he was a theater student in Milan in his native Italy. Before establishing his own puppet theater, he worked with Peter Schumann at the farm in Plainfield, Vermont, where Bread and Puppet was based in the early 70s. The most striking thing when you, when you work with him, he's volcanic. That means that basically when I lived in the farm, he was, the, he was in the workshop before everyone else, and he left the workshop after everyone else. And you can never, you, you always had the feeling you could never keep up with it. That's why he's invading in a way, because you're always under pressure, uh, which is a good way of learning in a way. He doesn't teach anything, but if you want it, and it's up to you, you can develop a relationship master to pupil in sort of traditional, classical, old-time way. That is, it's up to the pupil to steal whatever he can steal. And once he considers he has stolen enough, he says, thank you, goodbye, which is fine. I mean, it's a good way of learning. So that I see that today my work is completely different from his work, but still I use things that I learn with him Sometimes it's just little details in terms of rhythm or, or how to deal with the scene or how to say that bit of text. It's, it's hard to point things out precisely, but the influence is still there, definitely. Massimo Schuster was part of the Bread and Puppet Company in the early 1970s, at the end of what might be called the first phase of the theater's existence. These were years of acclaim when the theater became an artistic sensation but also of tumult. Many of Schumann's collaborators during this period were people of his own age, with a claim to be considered peers, and this often led to conflict. During the 70s, a second generation of puppeteers came into the theater, and a working compromise evolved between Bread and Puppet as a democratic community and Bread and Puppet as an artistic dictatorship. This was when John Bell joined the company, and he remembers enjoying considerable freedom in fleshing out Schumann's vision. One of the brilliant things that Peter does is say to people, and I think this is unlike the way, say, Robert Wilson works, you know, or other people work. He'd say, okay, here's a mask. Go off and invent a character for that mask, which is a costume, which is a gesture, which is movement, which is action. And Peter already has an idea that he wants this. He's sculpted the faces after all. So there's, it's already a guy with a mustache or a beautiful pink lady or a blue-faced character. Expressionist, if this is what it is. But we would go off in our rehearsals and we'd pick a mask, go to the costume room, 
put together a costume, find a, you know, like a prop, a handbag or a cane or something that that character does and invent a character. How great, you know, you get to invent your own character. You don't get to do this in most theater. John Bell was one of a number of people whose talents found scope within Peter Schumann's vision. But there was always a question about the nature of the relationship between Schumann and those who made his creations live and move. Michael Romanishan, then just 17, started working with Bread and Puppet at the same period as John Bell. He recalls how hard it was sometimes to understand and to name their connection with Peter Schumann. In this country, we don't really have that tradition of master-apprentice, and so we were always a little bit sensitive to being like disciples or... I mean, I was. I was a total disciple. Bread and Puppet was like a religion for me. But it wasn't a cult. It was just that I lived and breathed it for, you know, it was what I totally believed in, and I imitated it. But then I also rebelled against it at a certain point. I mean, I, you know, I started resenting that Peter had such a powerful... I wanted to break away from it. But I, it was only later, after meeting two Indian people that came to work with Bread and Puppet, and they were talking about that whole master-apprentice relationship and how common it was in India and, and so on, that I started really understanding that that's what it was and what a good thing that was and how lucky we were to have had that. What Michael Romanishan calls his rebellion happened for most of the puppeteers who aspired to an independent voice. But it was not so easy, Massimo Schuster says, to break out of the bread and puppet style. One of the problems once you have worked with bread and puppet and once you have come out of bread and puppet is to find your own way, which is a tough business because Peter is such a strong, volcanic, invading personality that actually it's very difficult to find your own way. So when I left the company in 75 for almost 10 years, my shows were bad copies of Bread and Puppet. Today, Massimo Schuster has his own puppet theater with its own distinctive style based in Marseille. His 10-year struggle to find his own approach is mirrored in many of Peter Schumann's former colleagues. Amy Trumpeter, was part of Bread and Puppet in the 1960s and 70s. She, too, has gone on to start her own puppet theater, Blackbird Theater, as well as teaching at Barnard College in New York. She says that the difficulty for her was not just in finding her own voice, but in having to give up her participation in the visionary ardor of Bread and Puppet. To be with that many people in a unified purpose... There's a utopian feeling in this, to know exactly what you're doing, to be doing this for such pure reasons that have nothing to do with fame or gain, to be with this beauty of the puppetry and the experiment of what I consider the most radical theater that the world has. I feel that. And to be in that wildness of experiment so good-naturedly with a group of people who have that as a goal, there is a utopian feeling in that, and it's hard to step out of that.
The contemporary flowering of puppetry owes a great deal to Peter Schumann and the Bread and Puppet Theater. As I have mentioned, many of the Bread and Puppet veterans whom you have heard tonight have gone on to establish their own theaters. And this influence has been just as pronounced with the young puppeteers who have made puppetry such a prominent part of anti-globalization agitation. Two years ago, police raided puppet workshops and arrested puppeteers in Washington, where they were demonstrating against the World Bank, and in Philadelphia, where their target was the Republican National Convention. Many of those arrested had learned their craft from bread and puppet. Matthew Hart, who goes by the nom de guerre of Maddie Boy, was one of those arrested in Philadelphia. He directs the Spiral Q Theater, and he spent several summers at Bread and Puppet. In many ways, it's like the mothership. You know, people go there to get schooled and meet other people who are doing similar types of work within that theater tradition. And then they go back. People go back and do their own work or... Or whatever. And I came back to Philadelphia and I, I chose to come back to the city and do a theater project that was in the same vernacular as Bread and Puppet, but that was really urban based. Maddie Hart's Spiral Q Theater is one of a number of new theaters that use puppetry as a form of political action. In the summer of 2001, these companies were invited to the Bread and Puppet Farm in East Glover, Vermont for a week-long festival called Radical Cheese, after the fermentation that cheese and political theater have in common. Each group presented a piece of work, and then everyone cooperated in one big show. Peter Schumann had a mixed reaction. It was good and disappointing. It was good that we did it. It was good to see folks. We saw some marvelous little pieces, wonderful, one girl, and her friends was just extraordinary, really, real beauty. And a lot of schluck, a lot of verseless, politicized, illustrative work. They don't learn anything there. I mean, it's always, you know, in Ajit Prop theater, it's always the danger that you have this cliche art and it's very inhibiting and makes me very uncomfortable to be part of that. And we were so much part of it by inviting it all here. Peter Schumann's discomfort is summed up in an interview he gave with a magazine called Orion Afield a couple of years ago. The interviewer asks him how he came up with the idea of using puppets, quote, as a tool for advocating social change. Schumann replies tartly that he doesn't think of puppets as a tool. This little exchange epitomizes the difference between bread and puppet and a lot of political puppetry. To Schumann, puppets are mysterious beings and not merely mouthpieces or organizing tools, as they are for some of his successors. Matty Hart wasn't at the Radical Cheese Festival in Vermont, but he says that for him, art is definitely secondary. In many ways, I have no artistic goals. <laughs> in many ways, I think that art is bullshit and that it's like the least important part of what we do. I feel like the value of this form of theater and this type of art making is that it's totally accessible to anyone and it's really easily taught and it's a performance model that regular folks without degrees in theater can plug into and make big outdoor plays about their own lives. 
fairly simply with just a few people who have a little bit more information about it. And I think that organizing around discrete projects like a piece of theater or a community parade that discuss and sort of showcase these community issues is a powerful political organizing tool. And it really lets people work together in new ways. And we've been able to create coalitions and collaborations with organizations that have been in the same neighborhood for 25 years and have never worked together. So I definitely think that our our model is that as community organizers. For Maddie Hart, puppetry is a means for people to express their grievances and an activity around which they can come together. Artistic refinement is not the point. Peter Schumann also likes the idea of people without degrees in theater making puppets. He's promoted it all his life, but he doesn't depreciate art in quite the same way. He thinks that politics needs art. Generally, with the young folks from the protest movement, to get interesting language of any form, whether it's puppetry or language or music and so on, beyond the normal, the normal, what's the normal, the folk singing, da, 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 oh, I'm so unhappy, atomic bombs are flying, boom, boom, boom. You know, to go from that and to make a real song and a scream and to, to make something out of this thing isn't all that easy. I haven't heard any good folk singer about these themes. The traditions don't click. You have to reinvent them. You have to step out of the historical pattern of those things because they were originally coming from nature admiration or love story making or what have you. And that understanding isn't very common, I would say. I mean, people don't relate radicalism in the arts, in the formal sense of the arts, with radicalism of politics but they are deeply related. Radical arts suffer from the absence of politics or the recognition how much politics play into the arts, and radical politics suffer from the absence of radical arts and radicalism in the arts because they use old, lucky, outlived formalisms instead of reinventing for the purposes of what they want to say. Radical politics needs art, in Peter Schumann's view, because it is only through art that the world can really see itself. An overwhelming world has to be enlarged, concentrated, slowed down before it becomes really visible. And for this purpose, images that are fresh, surprising, and undeniable are needed. Tired, outworn refrains will not do. Puppet theater can provide this necessary art, Schumann thinks, because it is cheap and homely and owes no allegiance to either political or artistic establishments. It's a view which continues to attract young artists to Bread and Puppet as summer interns. During a visit in the summer of 2001, I spoke with one of them while the band rehearsed outside for that afternoon's show. He's Jabari Jones, a public school teacher, artist, and puppeteer from New York City. He has the last word in tonight's program. What we love to do, or what we love to think, won't come from outside, but from within. Things that we can do ourselves. Bad poetry, you know, puppet theater, <laughs> that sort of thing. Homespun newspapers and songs and these ordinary things. 
and that may be hippie, but maybe there's something to hippie, and that um, puppets. Recently, puppets have been used quite a lot in political protest because of the commonness of, of puppets, because of the of this, the inner spirit of puppets. This ordinary thing, you know, this sort of thing like everyone loves a parade. Well, who hates a puppet? <laughs> <laughs> and so when the government or the police confiscate puppets that are going to be used in a protest, it exposes the ridiculousness, the absurdity of the, of the military system, of the cop system. And even if they're not in the, in the parade, even if like in Washington, D.C., they're confiscated and, and destroyed before the protest, still it was a, it was a counter demonstration that this or, these ordinary objects also have power and that obviously the power structure is frightened of this ordinary power which anyone has everyone has so everyone secretly is a collaborator everyone is secretly a puppeteer at heart <laughs> that's what the wonderful thing is On Ideas, you've listened to part three of Puppet Uprising, Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. The series concludes tomorrow night with a final program about the religious dimensions of Peter Schumann's art. Photographs of the theater's work are available at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Susan Mahoney and Dave Field. Associate producer and webmaster, Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $22, or a set of CDs or audio cassettes for $32. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. Or email ideas at cbc.ca. Please allow four to six weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1 is the hourly news, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers. Mm-hmm.